0: Oh, you guys are still sleeping. Good morning. Good to see you, call Louis Baptist. My name is Randy Polly. I am the pastor here. Welcome. If you're visiting with us, you have a bulletin, or you should, and there is a little perforated card on the side of that bulletin. If you could, just fill that out for me, put your information, only the first five of your social security number will do, and drop it in the offering plate on the way back. I'll find the last four later. Um, No, it's good to have you with us. I hope today, if you are joining us, I hope that you have come hungry. Are you hungry? That's a dangerous question for a pastor to ask at the beginning of the service, because now your mind is going to where I'm going for lunch. But, but, my prayer is that you came hungry this morning, both physically and physically actually, and spiritually, because we are going to feast at the Lord's table today as one body together proclaiming the name of Jesus. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I I am sometimes disappointed at my lack of hunger, and so I pray, and it's been my prayer that the Lord would just satisfy our souls this morning. He would satisfy it through the Word uh, after a two-week little hiatus from Mark, we're, we're back in Mark chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and start turning to Mark chapter 6. There are 56 verses in that chapter. We will not cover all of them. We will make it through verse 52. <laughs> I'm going to leave four for you to deal with later. Uh, what well, we will work from 1 to 52. We will not read them all, so, so do not worry about that this time, maybe next time. I hope you've been reading, following along with us. If, if you're here, you attend here regularly. We invite our members and, and those who attend to read along. I'm going to be in Mark 7 next week, and then Mark 8. And as you do your devotions, if you're wondering, what do I read? Read Mark. Ask questions. How come this? How come it says this? And, and that might Help you understand and get more from your daily time, and not only that, you'll be like, "Hey, you know, brother, sisters, good seeing you. How is your Mark reading going? What what did you see there?" And you can better interact with one another. Today is September seventh, two thousand fourteen. On September eleventh, two thousand one. That's Thursday. Four passenger jets were hijacked by terrorists and crashed, killing, totaling nearly 3,000 people, the day that we will remember as a nation that we grieved, a day that words like jihad would enter our national vocabulary and will likely never leave. Many of those people who died were likely more than just brothers and sisters by nationality. Many of them were fellow Christians. Brothers and sisters bought with the precious blood of Christ. Going about their day, not knowing that that day would be the day they met their Savior. Scriptures, these scriptures are not... They're not lights about our human situation. The scriptures are not blinded to the fact that as humans we suffer. That's why you see suffering addressed so often. And we're going to see today what the Word of God, there is a true presence of pain from the beginning of this chapter to the very end of it. As you trace each little episode in Mark, and you beat against Mark and ask and try to think his thoughts after him, why, Mark, did you place this here, this story here, and then this one here and this here? Why are they strung together, Mark? What is there to see? What do you want me to see as a Christian now? One of the things is that we're going to see the presence of pain. So to catch you back up to speed before we launch Any further, in Mark chapter 5, you remember, we saw hope was a person. Jesus, bringing light to darkness, hopefulness to hopelessness. We saw in chapter 4, the the mystery and the might of the kingdom of God. It starts like a small seed and, and grows and grows and grows. We saw the anatomy of a disciple, and then prior to that, chapter 2, we saw the autopsy of a Pharisee, and then we saw the voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make a way, the Lord is coming, repent and believe. And now what Mark is doing is he's marching us up to a pinnacle in the book, a huge shift that we'll get to in chapter 8, but we're paving the way to that and you're going to see some familiar familiar scenes here we're going to see three things from this text this big massive block we could see many many more we're going to see the presence of pain the promise of provision and then the promise of presence It'll be your three points to anchor onto the presence of pain, the promise of provision, and the promise of presence. And we're going to see that the Lord, the Lord Jesus, is our good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If there is any chapter in Scripture that flushes out the truth of that Scripture, Psalm 23, it will be Mark. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Let's pray, and we'll jump right into this. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, may we be hungry for you. May we be hungry for Christ. May we not feast on the small, fleeting pleasantries of this world, but Lord, may we feast on the bread of life, on Christ, Lord. May we identify with the psalmist, Lord, that as the deer pants for my water, so, so that my soul thirsts for you. For you, the living God, Lord, may nothing else satisfy. We were made for you, Lord Jesus, and you will and have promised to satisfy us. You gave your life to do it. And Lord Jesus, as we feast on Christ and feast our soul on your fullness, may we be overflowing with joy. May we be overflowing even amidst the pain in our lives, Lord. May we be just bearing much fruit for your glory. Lord, do this. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to see the presence of pain. We don't we're not going to read through all this. We'll we'll read in a little while and you'll see why, but we're going to see the presence of pain. We'll start with this. Obedience to Jesus can be hazardous to your health. Should be simple enough. Obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ can be hazardous to your health and welfare. There's a presence of pain, not in the least in the life of Jesus Christ. He he led us, actually, in this. There's suffering in life. In America, see, in America, we tend to think of pain and suffering when I have to drink water from the tap, right? Like, oh, man, I got to... Isn't there, like, fluoride here? No, okay, okay, I guess I can drink it. That's suffering. Or maybe... I was in a frenzy the night before and I forgot to charge my smartphone. So I wake up and on my way to work, I see I only have 25% of battery left. Man, the Lord is really trying my faith. How am I? Why would He do this to me? I'm lost. Or suffering having to use a porta potty for, well, you know, anything really. We're like, man, the Lord is trying us, we're suffering, but what we'll see in a minute is the majority of Christians, including Christ himself, have suffered far, far, far worse. And I don't say that to minimize the reality of our pain and suffering, I say it to normalize it, brothers and sisters. Peter said, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come among you. Mark is writing to Christians in Rome who are likely being persecuted for their faith, who coming to Jesus for them means automatically being an outcast and criminal in society. They lose everything. Mark is writing to them to encourage them to show that your suffering is not unique. Jesus suffered. He is the suffering servant king. So we're going to see that. We're going to see that in Jesus' rejection in his hometown of Nazareth. We're going to see it in the disciples' rejection as they get sent out two by two. We're going to see it in John the Baptist, the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, getting beheaded by Herod. We're going to see it in the weariness and the exhaustion of the disciples when they return. We're going to see it in their painful headway as they're rowing in, in the Sea of Galilee and They get to see one of the greatest miracles any human eye has ever seen. We're going to see suffering. First, Jesus is rejected in his hometown. It's the first scene. In verses 1 to 6, you see that he comes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's teaching in the synagogue. If you were to jump to Luke 4, you would see he's actually reading from Isaiah 61. And he's preaching his message, repent and believe. And we see them asking questions. Where where is this man getting this teaching? Where is his wisdom coming from in these mighty works? Do we not know him? A few things. They, They recognize the wisdom of Christ. They recognize even the mighty, miraculous works that he is doing. But yet they still doubt, and their hearts are still hardened. Their, their hearts are not seeing, their mind is comprehending, yes, Jesus is doing this, but their hearts are not seeing the glory of this person, this man who's more than a man, Jesus, God. They actually insult him. Isn't this, is this not the son of the carpenter, or is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Mary? Now, we reading that would just gloss over that. We don't understand. But you don't identify a man in that culture by his mother. You identify him by his father. So in that statement, there's actually a a slur against his illegitimacy. They thought that Jesus was actually the product of an adulterous affair, an immoral affair. Sexual union. And so they say, is this not Jesus, the son of Mary? They go so high as to insult him. Brothers and sisters, he grew up with these people. Familiarity with the holy can be just as dangerous as ignorance when it leads to callousness. Familiarity with the holy can be just as dangerous as ignorance when it leads to callousness. They took offense at him is what it says. His his message is offensive. This message is going to offend. When you tell somebody to believe, that's not too offensive. But when you say repent for your sin and believe. Repent for your mistakes and believe. Repent for your way of life and believe that message, no matter how nicely and kindly you say it, will inevitably offend. And that's exactly what happened. They took offense at him. And so we see this place, this synagogue, his hometown, the place that was supposed to be reading the scriptures, that was supposed to be expecting Jesus, that supposed to be awaiting Jesus, and his return is actually the place now that he goes and he is rejected. Actually, the place that he goes and he gets the most rejection from anywhere. Brothers and sisters, there is... Probably a great deal of application we can make to the church from this passage. Our familiarity, some of us have grown up in church. For some of us, this is new. But for some of us, we have been here our whole lives. And we know the stories and the scriptures. And and we are just as callous and in unbelief as they were. But I will not spend too long here. We'll move on. So Jesus says to them, a famous quote, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And because of their lack of belief, it says he could do no mighty act of faith there, of mighty works because of their lack of faith, except for he healed a few sick people. As I was reading that, I was like, wait, he could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief, except for he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and I was like, that's not mighty to me, you know, I'm like, wow, that man is walking. Yeah, he couldn't do any mighty work there. So yeah, that's, that's nothing. That's child's play. This is who Jesus is. He is the mighty savior. And it's not that he could not in his power, for he could and he has healed people that did not believe. It's that he is not going to force his kingdom on anybody. Christianity does not spread by the sword, but we seek to persuade people. We, seek, we preach the word in power and, and seek others to come and repent and trust Christ. And so we see Jesus marveling. Marveling, astonished at their unbelief. There's real pain here. Don't miss this. So, Jesus, not only did his family, Mark chapter 3, including his mom, not only did his family reject him, his brothers and sisters reject him, but now his very neighbors and hometown. What could have been a reception was a massive rejection. This is fulfilling exactly what John would write. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. As we see Jesus rejected by his family and friends. And we see the disciples' rejection is anticipated. So now, if you remember Mark chapter 3, a disciple is with Jesus. He he called them to be with him so that he might teach them and might send them out. This is exactly where we're at now. He's here to send them out, to give them authority over the demons. And and here's what he says. Here's what he says. If any place will not receive you and listen to you or hear you, then shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. He's warning them, people will reject you. Your message will be rejected, and when it does, this is what you are to do. This is instructions for them. Let me just make a side observation here. I want you to note the disciples, because in a couple of verses, we're going to see that their hearts were actually hardened. Mark, Mark records something that reflects very poorly on them. Their hearts were hardened, actually, a couple verses later. What I want you to see is that Jesus doesn't wait for you to be perfect before he can use you for his power. He doesn't wait for you to be perfect or to have all of your theology exactly your ducks in a row and to have your bachelors in theology and your masters and whatever. He doesn't wait for that before he can use you because it's not ultimately about you. It's about him and what he can do. The baseline level for disciples and his command to us is seen in chapter 5. Go and tell your friends and family how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Like the woman at the well, come and meet a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the one? Jesus doesn't wait for you to be perfect before he wants to use you. Let that let that maybe bake in your mind as you consider what ministry you want to be a part of. And go back. So the disciples go out and, and they have this instruction from the Lord and they preach the exact same message, which is a message of repent and believe. Repent and believe. And we see the next episode, John the Baptist executed. Essentially, John, like I said, was the the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And he's about to be executed by a king in the fulfillment, in the faithful fulfillment of his duty to speak the word of God. What happened that Herod would be so incited with anger to kill John the Baptist? Essentially this Herod had a brother. His brother's name was Philip. Philip was married. His wife apparently was pretty good looking. Herod sees her, convinces her to divorce him and marry him, and now they are married, living together. And John the Baptist, now prophet of God, comes on the scene, publicly rebuking the ruler of this area and says, it is not lawful for you to have your your brother's wife. I hope you can see how awkward, to say the least, that would be. And it was actually Herod that wanted to not put John to death. He was kind of perplexed with his message. It was his wife, the one that he had seduced. The one that John was saying, it's not lawful for you to sleep with her. It was her whose anger and wrath was incited, and she plotted and ultimately had him executed and beheaded. And John was merely, merely living in obedience to Christ, fulfilling his prophetic duty. One pastor said, one way to know if we are preaching the right message is based on how many people object One way to know if you're preaching the right message, you can base it on how many people object, because it is a hard word, is what it was called. This is often reminiscent this, or this reminds me of the Christian, the martyr, who was in another country, and, and he was faced with execution and by getting his head, decapitated. And he said to his executioner, you can separate me from my physical head, but you cannot separate me from my spiritual head. And boldly, that's exactly what happened. In and, and losing his life, like John, he lost nothing and gained everything. Christian, be bold in your faith and know if you are suffering, it's not necessarily because you are doing wrong, but it is Obedience often to the Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to these situations. We're going to skip ahead. You can see this played out again in the exhausted disciples. They come back. They've been preaching, and they're, you can sense the excitement. They came and they reported to Jesus all that they had done. They'd cast out demons and healed people. And Jesus' first words to them is, Come apart for a while and rest. It's in the middle of that that Jesus is actually going to do one of the only miracles that is recorded in all four Gospels, feeding 5,000 people. We'll get to that in a moment. And then skip ahead from that one in the last section. That'll cap off our section. You see the disciples making headway painfully. So Jesus does this miracle, feeds everybody, and it says immediately he forced his disciples into the boat and across the sea. For reasons why we don't have time to get into. But what we read a few verses later is now they're out in the middle of the sea. These fishermen, they're rowing. They don't have motorized boats, so they're rowing and working hard. And it says they're making headway painfully. All they were doing was being and living in obedience to Jesus. He put them in the boat. I can imagine their bitterness. Man... We could have waited. I could have stayed with one of those 5,000 people, probably had a nice house to sleep in. We could have left in the morning, no storms. Now here we are rowing. They were merely living in obedience to their Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, Jesus promised many things. He is the word of God who will always speak truth at the right time. He is the bread of life who will satisfy your soul. He is living water and you will never thirst again. He promises the peace of God because he is the God of peace. He promises the fruit of the spirit, love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. He promises forgiveness, acceptance by God, but he never, never promised a pain-free life or acceptance by your family and friends. He promised an abundant life, eternal life, not eternal death. At the end of the day, being accepted by God is all that matters. There are bigger and far greater terrors than being rejected by your closest friends and loved ones. He gives many things, but he never promised a pain-free life. Those who would preach the prosperity gospel as it is called, run right up against problems here because if there is a gospel that does not hold true for a third world country like Iraq or Iran then it is not the gospel if it's a gospel that we can say is true only for Americans or first world country Christians then it is not the gospel it has to be a full orbed gospel true for everybody in every nation that is existing the presence of pain is real In following Christ, when you follow Christ, we will encounter struggles that we likely never would have if we didn't. When we choose to follow Christ, you will encounter struggles that you would probably never have encountered if you didn't. But you will also be flooded and overwhelmed with true joy and peace and reward in knowing Christ. And at the end of the day, you will say, I have lost nothing. If you never play a game for fear of losing, you never will. But you'll never experience the joy of winning either. If you never climb a mountain for fear of falling, you will never see the glories of a summit. The path is hard. The way is narrow. But brothers and sisters, believe and stake your hope. The end is life. The end is life. There is the presence of pain. But there's also the promise of provision. There's the promise of provision. Jesus, when he sent the 12s out, he told them to take no food, no money, or bag. If we were going to translate that to today, he would say, don't take your food. Don't take your wallet and leave your smartphone at home. And you can see the disciples, oh, it just got real. Can't leave what? Am I, how am I supposed to Google where I'm going to go, Jesus? Go. Go in the power of the Spirit. They were to depend utterly on God. John, when he lost his head, he gained his life. But Herod, who kept his head, would ultimately lose his life. In fulfillment of the words of Christ, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The disciples spent themselves physically and were exhausted, but the Lord promised them rest. And then we come to our scene. The Lord promised them rest. They come back. He gets in the boat. They're going away in the boat, and all the townspeople see where they are going and they run ahead to meet them there. So when they were actually supposed to rest in the wilderness, They were actually greeted by a large, very large crowd. Five to 10,000 people had gathered there. That would be huge for Maui or anywhere, much less here, out in the middle of nowhere. I love how Jesus responds to this disrupted plan. Right, I would have responded like, no guys, okay guys, just, um, this is my rest time, I'm tired, I've been ministering for a lot, of, you know, you had a really hard demon, they were really mean, I just casted them out, I'm tired, I need a rest. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that. It says he gets out and he has compassion. He has compassion on the crowd. Let's read this account. We're going to be in verse 30 and on. and he began to teach them many things and when it grew late his disciples came and said this is a desolate place and the hour is late send them away let them go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat he answered them you give them something to eat and they said to him shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat it's more than a year's worth of late wages Sorry, it's almost a year's worth of wages. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass, and so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, before we read this part, in your mind have the Lord's Supper. Mark 14, that type of verbiage in your head. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. We read in the other Gospels that it was not even including the women and children. And here, Jesus feeds a multitude in the wilderness. We could spend the entire sermon here. We'll note a few things. Bible history, here we go. Old Testament, a couple thousand years prior to Jesus doing this, God had delivered mightily his people from bondage to Egyptian slavery. And he had fed them manna from heaven in the wilderness, miraculously, for 40 years. And here we have now God, again, about to prepare a table in the wilderness as the good shepherd of the sheep. That's what he said. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is compassionate. And he is about to fulfill Ezekiel 34. I will set over them one shepherd. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. That's Old Testament. That wasn't New Testament. That is Old Testament. And Jesus now comes and he is the good shepherd, he says in John, who shepherds the sheep. He feeds them. He pursues them. Brothers and sisters, wherever you're at in life, know this. Jesus is pursuing you with mercy and grace. The end result is those who ate, all who ate were satisfied, and there was an abundance left over. The parallel to the Lord's Supper in Mark 15 are undeniable. Christ is foreshadowing, the, this is a foreshadowing of the greater supper that he was to institute, and would remind his people that his faithful provision and presence with them is always there, even in the wilderness. He's reminding us that he would satisfy more than their stomachs, but their very souls, as we are about to partake. Brothers and sisters, truly the Lord is my shepherd. You shall not want. You shall not want. The next miracle recorded is probably the most famous. Second most famous, maybe. And it's no accident that the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water are put back to back. They're together because they're related. We'll, We'll read, the disciples didn't fully understand still about the bread and the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What Mark wants us to see is that Jesus is more than just a stomach filler. He's more than just a man. He is God, and he doesn't want us to focus on our present circumstances. Instead, he wants us to focus on the power and might of God. This is a warning for us that we can see, like his disciples saw, we can see his mighty acts of power, we can even be involved in ministry heavily and still have hardened hearts. And this is an exceedingly dangerous place to be. But praise God, he doesn't leave them. He comes to them, even in the storm, walking on water to get there if he has to. You ever feel like that? It says that they were there, that they were rowing, and they weren't making any headway. Maybe your life feels like that today. I just keep going, and I'm spinning my tires, and I'm not making any forward motion. Every step forward, I take three steps back. I just can't get ahead, and I feel like Jesus left me and put me here and hung me out to dry. If we were to read what Jesus did, it says he actually went up to the mountain to pray. Doubtless, I have zero doubt in my mind that he was praying for them. As they're out in the middle of the storm-tossed sea, he is praying for them And now, brothers and sisters, Jesus in his resurrected state is now interceding for us. There is one intercessor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he is praying for you right now in your stage of life. Amen. Interceding for you, begging, granting, giving grace and mercy to help in time of need. Turn to him. Jesus, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So, brothers and sisters, never stop following Jesus. If you've gotten distracted maybe by the busyness of the world, of of life, maybe even ministry, I want you to hear the words of Jesus. Come apart and rest for a while. Come apart and rest for a while. One pastor said it like this, if you don't come apart, you will come apart. If you don't come apart and rest, you will come apart. So brothers and sisters, it is not ungodly. Sometimes the most godly thing to do is to take a nap. God's been running the universe for an eternity. I think he can handle your schedule and your finances while you rest for a while. Seek his kingdom first, he says, and all these things, all of them will be added. Maybe you're hungry this morning. Maybe you're hungry like those people were hungry. It was The hour is late. They're tired. If they stay at the feet of Jesus much longer, they won't have time to get away, and they're, they're hungry. Maybe you say there's got to, got to be more to the life than this. There is. There's infinitely more to life than what you see with your physical eyes. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the bread of life. And he offers himself freely to all. And those who come to him will never leave unsatisfied. Dear friend, if you have not come to Jesus, if you have drifted away from Jesus, come back. Repent. And believe come back to him, and then finally we close. there's the promise of provision and the promise of presence, of His presence. This is as true now as it was then, whether God's providing a table in the wilderness or walking on water, Jesus will shepherd His people. Jesus will shepherd his his people. Romans eight thirty five, one of the greatest promises and passages in all of Scripture. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No! In all these things we are more than conquerors, Through Christ who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, God is with you. Nothing can separate you. And I close with a very brief poem or hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Whether you're in the wilderness or in the middle of the sea, God will walk on water to get to you when you need him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the God from all of eternity who has existed without any beginning. You spoke this world into being and you Job says you tread upon the waves. You walk upon the waters and now Jesus we see him walking in the water. Lord, move our hearts to bow and worship before him. Lord, create faith where, where there is no faith. Lord, where hearts are hard, would you melt them? Would you break that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that they would come and see that Jesus satisfies? Lord, work repentance here, Lord. May we believe that you are more than enough for all of our needs and wants and desires. And Lord, may we then move in powerful acts of faithful obedience for your name and your glory, not fearful of any threat of pain or suffering, but knowing that nothing in all of creation will separate us from the love of Christ. Lord, do this, I pray, for your name and your glory. Amen.